I'm actually going to begin with a sad story this morning. Here's the headlines this week. New York dietitian 27 hangs herself after posting suicide note. Being a pastor, these kind of headlines grab my attention. I always wonder what would be the background that a person would make such a drastic decision as suicide. Here's her picture, if you would, please. They don't tell anything about uh, her last name, Condell. The uh, workers uh, were worried, her workers at the Midtown office in uh, New York there, because uh, she posted a little blog on her uh, internet, her website. She's a registered dietitian and nutritionist, highly educated, very bright, uh, very successful. And the article talks a little bit about uh, her, but uh, here's just one paragraph of the suicide note. You can tell she's very well-spoken. I realize I am undeserving of thinking this way, meaning like I don't have any purpose in life. I truly have a great life, at least on paper. I'm fortunate to eat meals, most only imagine. I often travel freely without restriction. I live alone in the second greatest American city. Uh, San Francisco will always have my heart. So she was from, raised actually just a few miles from here. However, all these facets seem trivial to me. And here, one more sentence. I also felt absolutely nothing during that time that I should have been the happiest. And she said, honestly, at what point do I finally pull the trigger? And that time is now. Sad. Not only is it sad, it's actually the worst decision she's ever made. Because she's thinking that death ends her suffering. And my precious friend, she is a living soul, as you and I are. And she no more could cease to exist than God himself could cease to exist. Her spirit will go on in an endless, timeless, dateless, and measureless fashion, either in heaven or in hell. And that's all of us. Now contrast that tragic and sad story with these words. 1 John 5.13, if you put that up there, these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Wow. Knowing I have eternal life. What, what certainty that would give me. What purpose, what understanding that would give us. Tragically, somehow along the way, this highly educated, bright, successful young lady never was told or never listened or never took the time to listen. How sad. This morning, we're going to talk about defeating doubt and defeating a spirit like that. How can we have that? Well, the Bible's actually going to show us four very important steps to know we have eternal life. Let's all bow our heads, if you would, please. Father, we thank you this morning for your blessed grace and how my heart, Lord, uh, sank as I read that story this week, Lord, just as a pastor, as a shepherd, thinking of so many people who just get so hopeless. Oh, God, help us as a church, help us as a people, help each one of us as individuals to always remember somebody out there, no matter how successful may they seem, is hurting. 
And that, Lord, they may not have hope. Help us to give them hope. And, Father, if there's anyone here today that is on that edge, who is feeling and wondering about themselves, give them certainty today, I pray. Help us to know in Jesus' name. God said to Moses, you stand between the living and the dead. And honestly, every week I preach, even though we'll fellowship and we'll laugh and we'll shake hands and we'll encourage one another, honestly, every week I feel the same way. I never lose the, uh, the depth of what we're doing here today. Because I know that in this congregation behind every smiling face may be a troubled heart and a troubled soul. I know that in this group, you may be a person who's been here for years or a Christian for decades, and yet still honestly have a gnawing and just this uh, wonderment, am I truly saved? Let's go to 1 John chapter 5, if you would, please. And we're going to begin in verse number 11. Let's read it together. We're going to read three verses here to begin with. Thank God for the book of John. 1 John, it is an incredible epistle to remind us of so many things. Almost 40 times in this book, you'll find the word know. K-N-O-W. God wants us to know these things. All right, let's start with verse number 11. Let's read it together, please. Ready, begin. And this is the record that God had given to us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that ye have eternal life. Know. Say that word with me, please. Know. You can know it. Not think, not guess, not hope so, but with an assurance, I know I'm going to heaven. Every Christian here ought to not live like a question mark head all bowed, wondering if he's saved, we ought to rock, walk around like an exclamation point, head held high. I am sure of one thing, of Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. If I died right now, I'm going to go to heaven. We shouldn't be doubting Christians. We should be shouting Christians. We ought to have a no-so salvation, not a hope-so salvation. Years ago, before I ever came up here to Northern California as a young uh, associate pastor on a large staff, uh, a large church in Southern California. The church there uh, was involved in a nonprofit radio for a time. And part of the transition was that we had to do neighborhood surveys. And so we just had to walk around and talking to people. I guess it was to let the FCC know that we were addressing their concerns or whatever. But um, so there I was walking around just doing a survey, asking questions about their needs and thoughts and I happed upon a Roman Catholic church. Being the young preacher that I was, I thought, well, this would be interesting. Let's just walk inside and let's just begin a conversation. And it just so happens that the father was there, the priest was there. And so I sat him, we sat down for a few moments, asked if I had just a few moments of time, and he said he did. And a very kind man actually was willing to talk to me for a moment. Uh, as I recall, he was... Uh, it sounded like he had an Irish name or something, but uh, there he was. We were sitting there for a few moments, and after a bit of asking just a couple of questions, I said, you know, uh, this is a religious station we're considering. Could I ask you a question? 
Do you know that you are, that you have eternal life? Do you know that you're going to heaven? I'll never forget this priest looking at me. I don't know if it was the audacity of asking this man of God that question or if it was just he'd never really thought about it before or that the question arrested his mind. But he paused for a few moments and he looked at me and he said, young man, he said, nobody can know you're going to heaven. A religious teacher of the Bible looked at me and he said, nobody can know they're going to heaven. He said, you can only hope so. Well, at that time, I couldn't hold it any longer. I went from a person who was just asking questions. I said, if you'll allow me just to say one verse. And I quoted 1 John 5.13. These things, the Bible, have I written unto you that ye may know that ye have eternal life. God wants us to know. God wants us to know these things. Over almost 40 times in 1 John, God uses that word know. So I thought it would be appropriate just to use that a, a little acrostic there. And let's spell out the word know. K-N-O-W. Even though it talks about it 40 times, there's actually just, you could boil it down to four ways to know that you're going to heaven. How and what would characterize a true believer? First of all, it would be keeping the commandments. So we're going to spend most of our time in 1 John here this morning, keeping the commandments. Look at the beginning of this particular chapter, chapter 5, verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. Verse 3, this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not grievous. A genuine believer desires from his heart of hearts, her heart of heart, to obey the commands of God. Why? Because they're not grievous, or that's just another way of saying they are precious to them. The Word of God is precious. These are the kind of people that love to take the Bible and put it on their walls in their home or put it on, you know, someplace in their car, put bumper stickers on, wear t-shirts, you know, they quote the Bible. I mean, the truth is the Bible is just precious to them. These kind of Christians take a proactive approach to their faith. They don't just say, well, whatever comes my way. No, I'm going to make my faith something special. I'm going to take time to read Scripture. I'm going to take time to listen to the Bible. I was talking to one of our young fathers here, and he was saying he drives or he takes the H train over to Pleasanton five days a week. And I said, well, that's a kind of a neat way to go to work. And I love trains, you know, but um, he was saying, yeah, and he said, it's a great time to read my Bible. So every morning, he has a good hour just to spend time in the Word. He said, I'm reading through the Bible again this year. Now, that's a proactive Christian. That's a Christian who loves the Word of God. They keep the commands, not because they're obligated, not because someone's watching over his shoulder. In our new members class, I always um, tell our new members, I say, you know, I want you to know that, you know, the Bible says we ought to be serious about our faith. And, you know, these, this is part of our church covenant, and we want you to grow in the Lord, and we want you to do this and that. But I said, I do want you to know, no one's going to be coming to your house, checking on you, making sure you're reading your Bible. I'll save that for the millennium. But, uh, but right now, no, we're not going to be checking on you. 
I don't want you to feel obligated to read your Bible. I don't want you to feel obligated to do these things. No, we ought to do it because we love. We love the Bible. I love going by the toddler department, the beginner department in our church here. Man, they are great workers. You talk about real church. Real church goes on in children's church, I'll tell you right now. But uh, you go by those little two and three and four-year-olds and some uh, wonderful, uh, bright-sounding teacher will say to those children, say, all right, children, get your Bibles. And you have to explain what a Bible is. <laughs> get your Bibles out. And so they'll get their little Bible and they'll, she'll say, now, hold your Bible and hug your Bible, love your Bible, and go like this, go hug, and then they'll go oh, like that, love your Bible. What a brilliant thing to do for these children, that no matter whatever they do in life, you ought to love your Bible. And folks, I ask you that, do you love your Bible? The Bible reminds us that when you feed your faith, the doubts will just starve to death. I mean, the Bible is a way to feed and to starve that doubt right out of our mind. Now look at verse 2 here that we looked at. We keep His commandments. Keep. Now if you look up that word in your Strong's Concordance and go to the thesaurus there, you'll find that that word is used in a variety of ways. Keep. It's actually the word to watch. And in some cases, it is used by a mariner, for example, who is watching or looking at the stars. They didn't have any uh, way to navigate by radar or anything like that. And so they would navigate by the stars. They would take their little instrument and look up there. I have something like that in my office. And sometimes I look through it thinking, how in the world do they ever figure out where they're going by looking? <laughs> Unbelievable. But they'd look through that little sextant, I think it's called, and they would look at the stars. They would keep that's the word keep. They would view. They would view and they would guide their life by the stars by keeping their eyes on the stars. That's what we do as believers. We keep our eyes on our stars. What are the stars? It's the verses that God gives us. It is the Word of God. And it's true. We might get off course once in a while, but thank God we get back on course as long as we are keeping His commands. If the heartfelt command to love his Bible is not there, then I think we need to check out and find out, are we truly saved? Now, you may have made a profession of faith years ago, and it's possible that over the years of so much baggage, that's become a little bit less clear than it is. But the Bible reminds us that if you don't keep the Word of God as a lifestyle, and that's what this is talking about, you're keeping it as a lifestyle, then it might be a red flag. There may be something going on here. These things have been written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that believe. I want you to look at verse 13, please. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God. This really even is a, an end of verse number two and verse number one. What does it mean to keep His commands? What does it mean to believe the Word? Notice that word believe is not in the past tense. It's not believed. The Bible doesn't say, what did you believe one day? It is, what are you believing right now? The real question this morning is not what you believed one day, but what are you believing right now? Are you 100% sure that you are believing in Jesus Christ right now? Do you have a relationship with the Son of God right now? 
Now, some of you are privileged, and that really is a tremendous privilege, to know the date and the time and the place that you were saved. And that is a tremendous privilege. And honestly, I admire that and even am jealous of that. I don't have that. But many people have that. Others are like myself, and you don't have that exact moment. But really, you know, it doesn't make any difference whether you remember the exact day or hour. Sometimes we pastors, sometimes evangelists will say, if you don't remember the day and hour, are you sure you're saved? Well, here's what this verse says. It doesn't say, if you believed. It says, if you believe. Are you believing right now? Let me give you an example. Let's say right now that you had this brilliant idea. You were going to go back to the Super Bowl tonight. And so right after the service, I mean, immediately you get in your car, race up to Sacramento, get on an airplane, and you start flying back to Georgia. Now, you land there, Atlanta, just in time to run over there and get to the game. I mean, you're very excited. Now, do you know the exact moment that you crossed into Georgia? No. I mean, it was a journey. You don't really remember the exact moment. All you know is you're in Georgia. Amen. I'm in Georgia, so I know I crossed the line. And that's what I would say this morning. You'd say, well, if you don't know the exact time, how do you know you were saved? All I know is what I believe now. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. That's what I believe right now. And so that moment, whether it was when I was four, whether when I was 19 or another time perhaps, All I know is I'm believing in Jesus Christ right now 100% for my salvation. If you have a moment, amen. But I think this is a great reminder that it's not only what we believed, but it is what we believe. There's a story about the great American humorist, Will Rogers. He went in for a passport so that he could travel. They said to him, we will need your birth certificate. He looked at them and said, well, why do you need my birth certificate in order for me to get a passport? They said, well, we need proof of your birth. He said, well, I'm here, ain't I? (laughs) What more proof do you need? Folks, the proof of our salvation is not a certificate from a church. The proof of our salvation is that right now I am standing in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe him. And that's what it says in 1 John 5. One, it says, he that believeth on Jesus is born of God. If you know Jesus, then you have the plan of salvation. Someone said, well, I know the plan of salvation, I'm, and uh, that's how I got saved. Folks, you were not saved by the plan of salvation. You were saved by the man of salvation. And it's not a formula. It's not a certificate. Here it says very clearly that you keep the commands you love the Bible. Do you have a love for Scripture? Then you can know you're saved. Number two, keeping the commands. First of all, excuse me, keeping the commands. And second of all, in noticing sin. So we're going to spell the word out no. We, how do we know we're saved? Forty times in this First John, it talks about knowing, keeping the commands, and noticing sin. True believers desire to live a moral lifestyle. Look at chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, and God is righteous, hallelujah, he is totally righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness then is born of him. Now, God is not referring to sinless perfection. That's a doctrine where some 
have taught that it's possible as a Christian to become a point where you never sin. <laughs> I know there's a lot of theological arguments for that, but I can always tell you one thing. You don't need a theological argument for someone who believes that. All you need to do is ask their husband or wife. <laughs> is your husband sinlessly perfect? Is he absolutely perfect? <laughs> they would say, well, he's a good man, but no, he's not sinless. Is your wife sinless? Well, she's a wonderful woman, but she's not sinless. Now, there's no such thing as sinless perfection. But here's what this Bible is talking about. It is saying if you have a hardened, a consistent hatred for God's righteousness, if it bothers you, if it bothers you when the pastor stands up and says something about morals and righteousness, if it bothers you when someone stands for the things of God, then there's a red flag there. If there's an apathy for the th things of righteousness, if you seldom, if ever, constrain yourself based on an inner moral. <laughs> there was a I love to tell the story, I told it several times over the years. There was a young mother in her home that was talking with an older mother of several children and was asking some advice and saying, I don't know what to do. My little child goes out and plays out in the front yard and it's all fenced in, but they know how to undo the latch and they'll just undo the latch or walk right out of the fence. I said, what should I do? I mean... Um, they, they just, they're doing this on their own. And the older mother says, well, what you need is not a latch on the fence. You need a latch on the heart. You see, when the child gets an inner constraint, when they get an inner morals that, hey, I need to stop this. This isn't right. Have you noticed that about your children? Have you noticed that about yourself? That there is a moral restraint that, boy, I just shouldn't do this. Not because I'm afraid of getting caught because that's not a good sign. Not because I'm afraid that someone's going to be upset with me. No, there's just an inner call that says, ah, that's not good. That's just not good. Here's what it says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 6. If we say that we have fellowship with Him, but walk in the darkness, <laughs> we're lying. <laughs> and usually to ourselves because others know that. Verse 7 says, if we walk in the light, then we know we're with Him because He's a light walker. If you're walking in the light, if you're a moral person, you'd say, well, what is the light? The light is moral truth as found in Scripture. The light is not a good idea from Oprah's book club. The light is not an inspiration from some monk who's sitting in a tree telling us good thoughts. The light is not a passage from the Koran. No, the light is Scripture. If we walk in the light, moral truth is given from Scripture. Another way to know that we are righteous, verse John 1, 9 says it this way, we confess our sins. It's not a problem to us to confess our sins. Some folks, to get an I'm sorry out of you, to get a I was wrong out of them, is like pulling teeth. But a person who's a Christian, they're quick to say, Lord, you know what? I'm sorry. That was wrong. They go to the Lord and say, Lord, I was wrong. So confess our sins means not to go like some Roman Catholic and say your Hail Marys and, you know, make sure that you go to the priest or whatever. That's not what that's talking about. Confess our sins. It means to agree. The word confess means to say the same thing. To agree with God that that was wrong. Do you ever, on your own, privately, 
go to God and say, Lord, I am wrong. That was, that was sin. Do you confess your sins? Do you agree with God? That's what it means. That's what it's simply saying is, do you ever go on your own privately, God, that was wrong. That was a terrible attitude. Lord, you, do you feel convicted by the Holy Spirit and do you confess it? It's not just a sense of regret because that's not enough. It is a confessing. It's a proactive approach to saying, you know what, God, that was wrong. But I love the last part of that verse. It says, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is a tremendous privilege to be a born-again Christian because you know that you need to agree with God that was wrong. But at the same moment, this verse says, you're agreeing with God that your sins are forgiven. And that's a great feeling. You know, it's like the sense I always had with my dad. I I had a wonderful, I was privileged to have a wonderful dad to love the Lord and serve the Lord. And I grew up wanting to be a good person, want to serve the Lord. But you know, like any child, like any young person, I, and like any adult, you, you screw up once in a while. But here's what I knew. I knew that if I went to my dad, he might, you know, chastise me, might uh, have a little talk. But I knew this, that he would always forgive me. I had just had that sense that he loved me. And that's what a true believer has. A true believer knows that their dad may not be happy, but their heavenly father is not going to be okay with sin. How do I know that I'm saved? Keeping the commandments, noticing sin, and then O, orthodoxy in doctrine. To be orthodox means to be fundamental. It means to be straightforward. And, uh, an orthopedic uh, surgeon straightens out uh, bones. An orthodontist takes crooked teeth and straightens them out. Ortho meaning straight. Straight in their doctrine. Now this actually is a different kind of a test because the others are more um, subjective. In other words, what am I doing? But this is more of an objective test. It is a private test that you ask yourself the question, what do I really believe? This is about false doctrine. False doctrine is a tremendous uh, hindrance to true certainty. Look at chapter 2, verse 20. But you have the unction from the Holy One. <laughs> I like the old country preacher was asked, do you know what the unction is? He said, I don't know what it is, but I know what it ain't. And I know when I don't got it. But you have an unction. That just means a calling, a sense of a prompting from the Holy Spirit. And you know all these things. What do you know? Verse 21, I have not written unto you because you know not the truth, but because you know it. And no lie is of the truth. <laughs> These people who lie about the Scripture, that's not truth. They say, well, there's all kinds of truth. No, there's only one truth. Verse 22, who is a liar? And listen closely. But he that denieth Jesus is the Christ. If you talk to somebody and maybe you just meet him and somehow the conversation about Jesus comes up and they'll say he was a great teacher, but he's not God. You could look at them in the face and say, you know, you seem like a nice person. And I don't know a lot about you, but there's one thing I do know about you. You're a liar. They say, wait, what are you saying? Well, here's what the Bible says. If you deny that Jesus is the Messiah, is the Holy One, is God in the flesh, then one thing I do know about you is you are a liar. In fact, more than a liar, you are actively engaged as an antichrist, and you deny the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father, but he that acknowledges acknowledges, noticing 
They notice their sin. They are orthodox in their doctrine. Do you believe that Jesus is God in the flesh? Do you believe that? Amen. If you believe that, then that's a good place to start. Do you believe that it's solely through the merits of the Lord Jesus Christ and his substitutionary death on the cross that you can have your sins forgiven? If you believe that, we're getting to the right place. Look what it says in chapter 5, verse 1 of 1 John. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ, meaning the Messiah, he's God, is born of God. To be born of God, just another way of saying being born again, just another way of being saying converted, just another way of saying redeemed, just another way of being saying, I'm saved. Now, very clear, the Bible says the way to be saved is to believe that Jesus Christ is the only Messiah. You can't believe that Allah is the way to God and Jesus. You can't believe that Buddha is the way to God and Jesus too. No, there is no other way. It is exclusively through Jesus Christ. And by, you'd say, well, that's a, that's a Western world white man religion. Folks, the Bible was written in the Middle East, you ignoramus. I mean, it was, a, it was written in the Middle East by people that were all different colored skin than I have for sure. Folks, this is not a certain person's religion. This is what God says. He said, you believe in Jesus Christ, that he is the Messiah, then that person could be saved. Now, do you believe that? You'd say, that just sounds too simple. Thank God that the gospel is gloriously simple. Someone once said, salvation is not so high that few can reach it. It's often so low, many don't get down to it. We just think it's too easy. He'd say, well, everybody knows that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. Everybody knows that the way to heaven is through Jesus. Actually, they don't. And surprisingly, fewer and fewer people in this Western world here in Christian America know that. When I started out 40 plus years ago in the ministry, I mean, you could go to an average three-bedroom type home community, walk them down the street. You actually got quite a few people. If you actually asked them what it meant to be saved, they would at least get pretty close. Today, go up and down the streets of Stockton, walk up to a person and say, let me ask you a question. Do you know the way to heaven? Do you know how to get there? And if they would talk to you, they would probably say something like, well, I know one thing, you got to be good. I know you got to be a good person. And then if you ask them if they are a good person, they would say, well, I hope so. Most people believe that the way to heaven is kind of like, God is like a Santa Claus. You know, he's, he's, uh, he's taking his list, he's checking it twice, you know, to make sure that you're not been knotted, but you're nice, you know. Others think that God is like a big judge and he's got all the th- good things you've done. I used to play tennis with a guy, he was a rascal, I'll tell you. But he was a funny guy. I mean, he just, he said the most hilarious thing. He'd make me laugh. And uh, I'd give him the gospel and um, he told me one day, he said, you know, I think God might just let me into heaven because I make people laugh. He said, you know, I got a lot of, basically, he was saying, I got a lot of bad things about my life. And he, he was a rascal, I'll tell you. But all these bad things, he felt like maybe somehow because he could make people laugh, he'd kind of weigh it out. Folks, God doesn't have a big scale in the sky. God says you are saved by grace through faith. And that's what it says in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8. Look at that verse. It's a familiar verse for many. 
For by grace are you saved through faith. A lot of people misquote that and say, we are saved through grace. No, actually, we're saved by grace. It's through faith. Faith is the vehicle, but grace is the action. Think of grace as the hand of God reaching down to us. Think of faith as our hand reaching up to God. Boy, I hope that thing doesn't fall down. That lens up there. Anybody, if it falls down, you've had your warning, okay? No lawsuits. All right. But anyway, hope we get that thing fixed pretty soon. But anyway, um, just happened to see that up there. All right. It's a warning over there. The whole section better be cleared out. But um, so grace is God's hand reaching down. Faith is my hand reaching up. And then it is God doing all the pulling. (laughs) It's the grace of God. I am saved by God's grace. I am not saved by my faith. But it is the vehicle of faith that trusts the grace of God. When you have the grace of God, you can have assurance. Now, if I think that it's anything other than that, if somehow I'm thinking I've got to help God pull me up, you are never going to have assurance. Why? Because you have this feeling, did I do enough? Have I done enough? Am I enough? But if you realize it's all by grace... Yes, it's through my faith. It's acting on what God said, but it is by the grace of God. Then the wonderful grace of Jesus. I love that old song. We used to sing it years ago. Wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin, you know, broader than the scope of my transgressions. You know, I used to love to sing that song. And the men would have that wonderful part in the chorus and the ladies would go way up there and do that other stuff. I don't know what they're doing. I never even figured that out. But the men would be singing, broader than the scope of my transgressions. And I love that song. Wonderful grace of Jesus. Well, I know where they got that song from because it is wonderful. It is the grace of Jesus that takes me to heaven. It's now through my faith, hallelujah, but it is by the grace of God. And so how do I know that I'm saved? Keeping the commands. Is that part of my life? I love the scripture. Do I notice sin? Do I have an inner moral compass that just sets me off? Hey, that's not right. Do I have an orthodoxy in doctrine? It can't be Jesus plus this. It is Jesus alone. And then finally, we welcome worship opportunities. We welcome worship opportunities. Chapter 3 and verse 14, we know that we've passed from death into life. There's that word no again, because we love the brethren. We love being around God's people, the brethren. doesn't mean, you know, some pastor or something, although it does include that. But it just says, he that loveth not his brother or Christian friends abides in death. When we genuinely love the Heavenly Father, we love His children. One of the characteristics of being truly saved is you love to be around people that are saved. Some people will say, well, you know, I can be a Christian and don't have to go to church. I can be a Christian and worship God all by myself. I don't really need to go to church. Folks, if that's your feeling, you would be accurate technically. But practically, it's suspect, because if you have that feeling that you don't need church, pretty good sense you're not saved. I mean, it's a fact. You'd say, well, I don't need church. Well, then, boy, you ought to check yourself, because that's why God said in Hebrews 10, 25, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Over and over again, He commands us because it's only, it is not only biblical, 
It is natural. You'd say, natural? What do you mean? It's part of our nature to want to be around people that are like us. In science, it's called innate behavior or learned behavior. Behavior is determined, they say, by a combination of inherited traits, experiences, and environment. Some behavior is innate. That is, it comes from your genes. Innate behavior. Never have to teach a person to eat. That's innate behavior. Now, what they appetite for is a learned behavior, but the fact to eat, no, that just is an innate behavior. There is innate behavior and learned behavior. The, the natural things of our spirit are the things that want to be like, it just comes from our genes. When we get saved, we get regened. <laughs> There's a theological word for that. It's called regeneration or regeneration. We get new genes. When I get born again, God places inside of me these genes that long to be around God's people. What is it in the Christian that desires to be in church? Here's what it says in 2 Peter 1.4. We become a partaker of the divine nature, a new nature. It is not only biblical, it is natural for a Christian to want to go to church. It is part of our new innate, not learned behavior. It just is a, people say, well, you go to church because you were raised in church. No, I go to church because it's part of my nature. <laughs> it's not learned behavior. It's innate. I want to be around God's people. Now, whether we do it on Sunday morning or Sunday night, or, but it's just part of my innate behavior. I love to be around God's people. Now, folks, I'm not saying that you have to go to church to be a Christian. I'm just saying it is very clear that you, because you are a Christian, you love to be in church. It is part of our innate behavior. Now, where we live, we have lots of critters. We have squirrels. I used to love squirrels. I hate squirrels now. And uh, I hate them with a passion. Every time I see a dead squirrel on the side of the road, I just pull over and say, thank you, Lord. And uh, thank you for killing that brother and cousin of the squirrels at our house. They are terrible. They tear up everything. They are the most destructive. Anyway, we have lots of critters. I'm not bitter about squirrels, but um, we have all kinds. We have beavers. They've fallen trees over there. But one thing we have are these uh, little bunny rabbits, these little cottontails, and they, they hop around and, again, pests. They, they eat up everything. But they're cute. I will say that. Now, I have watched these little guys, and they kind of hop around. And You know what I've never seen? We also have coyotes out there. You know I've never seen a little bunny rabbit hopping next to a coyote? Never. I saw a coyote with a bunny rabbit in his mouth walking along one time. And because uh, coyotes and bunny rabbits don't want to be together. At least uh, the bunny rabbit doesn't want to be around the coyote. It's innate behavior. It's not learned behavior. It is just natural. You know, you go in these neighborhoods, you never see a pack of dogs run around and a couple of cats with them, you know. What are we going to do, dog? Hey, Rover, where are we going now? And uh, I don't know, little cat. Just get away from us, you know. The, the dogs and cats don't want to be around each other. They're just their nature. God's people want to be around God's people. It's part of our nature. You'd say, well, 
What does the Bible say about that? The Bible says that the church is the body of Christ. And the head is Jesus. Well, I'll tell you one thing, Pastor. I love Jesus, but I'm not into church. Well, then you're strange. That'd be like a person saying, I, Tim, I sure like your head, but I don't like your body. You don't mind if I kick your body, do you? You don't mind if I step on your body's feet, do you? Well, yes, my head minds that. Yep. People say, well, I'm not into the local church. Well, then really? Wow. You might want to check yourself because the body of Christ is connected to the head. And you can't love the, the head and not love the body. It is just nature to love the whole thing. And that's what God's telling us then. You're here this morning and you're saying, am I a Christian? Do I know that I'm a Christian? This verse, these verses are just meant to be reassuring. They're meant to be, uh, hopefully they're meant to be something that would help us really find out. Because maybe you've been on a roller coaster. Maybe at certain times you kind of wonder, maybe like this gal at the beginning of my message, you begin to question, wonder. You say, you know what, I just got this private feeling going on. I just wonder what it's all about. Folks, get saved. Get eternal life. Doubt in our mind has been called like a skeleton in the closet. And there's no better way to deal with a skeleton in the closet than to bring it out and expose it to the light. Expose that doubt to the light of God and watch what happens. You'd say, well, I don't know what to do about this thing. I, I feel like such a bad person because I have doubts at times. You know the amazing thing about being a bad person or having doubts about God? Once you get that settled and overcome your doubts, oftentimes those Christians become the strongest of God's disciples because you can't shake their faith. <laughs> their faith's already been shaken and it's been found to be true. And all of a sudden, boy, I tell you what, it just gets settled. I know that's what happened to me years ago. I was just doubting. And boy, I, I, there was a period of a season of time where honestly, before I finished Bible college, I was just filled with doubts. And it was a very natural thing, I think, was happening because I had gone from just living a teenage life and just doing this and that. And I, you know, I was trying to be a good boy, but I went to Bible college. And I mean, three and four and five hours a day being preached to, you know, taught the scripture. And so all day long, light was just flooding into me. Light, light, light. And pretty soon, boy, I just got the feeling like, man, am I really saved? And for two or three months, just kind of wondering if I was born again. Man, this is, it was a terrible feeling. And I've told you many a time, oftentimes at our dramas, I'll tell the story that all of a sudden on that beautiful afternoon in 1975 outside of San Dimas, California, went outside of that dormitory there and just looked up to God and say, okay, that's it. I'm done. I am done with doubt. Lord, I knew, know that if I would call upon you, you would save me. And I genuinely, I knew I was calling upon him. And so whether or not I've ever been saved before, I don't know, Lord. But one thing I know, I ask you right now. You'd say, well, do you know the time and the place, Pastor? I really don't. I don't actually know when I believed, but I know what I believe. And no, because I know what I believe, I know I passed the line somewhere. I believe that Jesus Christ right now is my Lord and Savior.